Would you take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 4? We're continuing in this series uh, looking at the uh, gods that are at war in our life or the idols in our life. And today we're going to be talking about the gods of power. And I'd like us to look at Daniel chapter 4 as an example of that. I'd like to read part of this passage for us as we begin and then we'll refer to it as we go along. Listen to Daniel chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar wrote this letter to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world. May you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. And I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field." Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the Spirit of the Holy Gods is in you. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, it is awesome. It is powerful. It speaks to our needs, to our heart and our life situation as well as it did then. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray as we talk about this subject of God's of power, the idol that power can become in our hearts, Lord, help us to see it through your eyes. 
and to put you first of all in our heart. Amen. In every family, there are certain house rules that are very important. You may have house rules concerning, you know, work before play or certain bedtimes that are enforced for your kids or curfews as they get older. Uh, there may be rules about behavior in the house or about how much TV they can watch or how much time they can spend on the computer. And I think about a friend of mine who once told me in his house, though, the one rule that trumped everything else was you were to show respect for your parents and especially your mom. He said, if you ever wanted to get dad mad, just talk back to mom, because that was like the number one rule. You don't talk back to your mother. And I think about that with God. Does God have things that stand out more than the others when it comes to sin? I mean, God indeed hates all sin, but especially the sin of pride. It is the sin that is behind all of the others. And when I talk about pride here, I'm not talking about the pride that you may feel in a job well done or the pride of being part of a team that's won a big game or a championship or it's not the pride you feel when your children learn something new or are doing well and you're proud of them. I'm talking about the kind of arrogant pride where we want to be our own God and we want to make our own decisions and we want to go our own way apart from him. It is that pride that was at the heart of the temptation that was given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the pride to be their own God. Or it was that pride that was at the heart of Satan's rebellion against God in heaven when he said in his heart that I will set my throne above God's or I will be like the Most High. And it is that pride that fuels our desire for power and control. As with all of the other gifts that God gives, there is an appropriate use of power and authority and there is a misuse or abuse of it. God has given the gift of leadership in the church and there is a place for leaders to exercise the authority that they have been given under God. But it is always servant leadership. It's not to be self-serving. It is to be for the good of the body of Christ. But because of the abuse of power that there can be in our world, there are times when power becomes an idol in our life, a way to get our own way over others, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The story that we're going to look at is this story of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, that's found in chapter 4. And let me give you a little bit of background about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful king in the Middle East, from the years 605 to 562 B.C. Uh, Babylon was the dominant power at that time. Nebuchadnezzar's army had defeated the Assyrians. They were in power before him. And he defeated the Egyptians at a very famous battle in history called the Battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C. Carchemish is located on what would be the border today of uh, Turkey and Syria. It's along the Euphrates River. It's interesting, it's in the very area where ISIS and the Kurds and the Syrians and the Iraqis and everybody are still fighting today. 
And the Babylonian Empire extended from the borders of Iran, or what would be Susa in Iran, all the way to the Nile River in Egypt. That whole fertile crescent through Israel, the whole area of what in the scriptures is called the Levant, that fertile crescent uh, extending from Babylon down through Jerusalem. And so here Nebuchadnezzar is. He's come to power. And he won this great battle. And in that battle, he comes upon Jerusalem. And in the first wave of deportation, he's going to carry off Daniel and his friends into captivity. In the second wave, he'll carry off Ezekiel and others from Israel. And in the third wave, he will destroy Jerusalem and the temple and carry off all of the treasuries back to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had power and wealth, and no one could thwart him. No one except God. And God was at work in his life. And Nebuchadnezzar was about to learn three very important things about the one true God. The first point that we see in this text is that Nebuchadnezzar would learn that God is sovereign over men and nations. And we see that in verses 1 to 18. In the passage I read for you, the beginning three verses are really his statement of what he learned. This is kind of like the conclusion of what he learned, and then he's going to tell you the story of how he got to that point. And so here he is, this pagan king who has had this experience, this encounter with God that has brought him to the point where he would say to all the peoples and all the nations of the earth, to the people of every language, who live in all the world. I want to tell you about the Most High God. I want to tell you that there is indeed one true God who is great in His power and mighty in His wonders. And His kingdom is an eternal kingdom and His dominion endures from generation to generation. And Nebuchadnezzar would say, you know, I didn't believe that once, but I do now. I believe that God is sovereign over every king and nation, even the kings of the Gentiles. And he is the one who determines the times and the boundaries and the places where we live. We read that in the book of Acts, for example, where even concerning us and our individual lives, he is the one who determines where we will live and what time we will live, and he does it so that we might turn to him and seek him and find him. Again, Nebuchadnezzar would say, I didn't believe that before. I used to think that Nabu was the chief god, or Marduk, or Bel, or any of these other gods in their pantheon that they worshipped. But I want to tell you what happened to me. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a great and large tree. It was enormous. It reached up to the heavens, and people of all nations could see this great tree as it towered over the landscape. But then this command was given to cut down the tree and to leave only a stump in the ground. And then the command changed, and it's no longer talking about this tree, but then in verse 15 it says, now let him let a man, this man, be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. And let his mind be changed from that of a man. And let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. Wow. 
what is going on here? Nebuchadnezzar was terrified by this dream that he saw. And he called for all of the wise men of Babylon to come to interpret it, but they could not. Only Daniel, in whom he said was the spirit of the gods, could interpret it. Nebuchadnezzar had grown proud of all he had made, and now he was about to learn a very hard lesson that only God is great. King Louis XIV of France died in 1715. He was the longest reigning monarch in European history. He had a reign of 72 years. He called himself the Great, Louis the Great. He was called by others the Sun King because his palace of Versailles was so opulent. There was so much wealth, so much uh, gold there that everything was kind of covered in gold. And uh, they, you know, viewed his court as the most beautiful and most magnificent in all of Europe. He was the monarch who made the famous statement, I am the state. I am the government. My word is law. What I say goes. And that's how he reigned in France at that time. And when he died, he had directed that his body should lay in state in a golden coffin, Orders were given that the cathedral should be very dimly lit with only a special candle above his coffin to dramatize his greatness. And at the memorial, thousands of people waited in hushed silence when Bishop Mazalon was about to speak. What would he say on this occasion? What would he say on that day? And as he began to speak, he slowly reached down and he snuffed out the candle that was over the coffin. And he said, only God is great. I think about King Louis XIV. He was the king who persecuted the Huguenots, the French Calvinists. He's the one who ordered their death that led to the exodus of tradesmen and merchants and craftsmen that went to England, Scotland, Ireland, and America as literally two million people left France in those years or were killed. I think of Napoleon, who at the height of his power is reported to have given this cynical answer to someone who asked him if God was on the side of France. Napoleon replied that God is on the side that has the heaviest artillery. Then came the Battle of Waterloo, where Napoleon lost both his battle and his empire. And years later, when he was in exile on the island of St. Helena, he was chastened and humbled. And Napoleon is reported to have quoted the words of Thomas Akempis, that man proposes, but God disposes. God rules over kings. He rules over our lives, too. And it doesn't matter who we are, whether we're the president of the United States or the president of our own company whether we are rich or poor or educated or uneducated, only God is great. And secondly, Nebuchadnezzar would learn that God is watching everything we do, and we see that in verses 19 to 27. The dream is told to Daniel, and Daniel is terrified by the dream as well because he knows what it means. He knows this dream is about Nebuchadnezzar, his boss, his king, this 
tyrant, of a ruler. And in verse 22, he will say to him, O king, you are that tree, and you have become great and strong, and your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. And he said, You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. In verse 24, Daniel said, This is the interpretation. O king, this is the decree. The Most High has issued against my Lord the King that you will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. This is the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar would be driven away from the people and live like an animal for seven years until he would acknowledge that God is sovereign over all. So here is my advice, Nebuchadnezzar. Renounce your sins and turn to God in repentance now before this happens. The Bible is telling us that God knows everything about us. In Hebrews 4.13, the Scripture says that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Everything is open before him. I mean, we live in a world and in an age where we can kind of understand that. You know, every time you go on the computer, every site that you visit is being tracked by somebody. And generally by a whole lot of people that are out there more than we realize that are tracking everything that we do. Building profiles about us, building profiles about our viewing habits, our spending habits, or where we're going or what sites we like to visit. It's all there. Every call you make on your cell phone, if you have a cell phone, you know, is tracked. And now uh, even your location can be tracked through those cell phones. Everything about you, every movement you make, every place you go, it can all be there. But what we're talking about with God is even more than that. God not only knows those things, he also knows the motives of our heart. He knows our longings. He knows our desires. He knows our heart cry. He knows what's going on on the inside of us. He sees what we do in public, and he sees what we do in private. He knows our longings. He hears our prayers. And we can fool ourselves sometimes, and we certainly can fool others, but we cannot fool God. So the best way to live is to be open and honest with him about all things. And turn from our sin and admit it to God. That was Daniel's advice to Nebuchadnezzar, but sadly, Nebuchadnezzar would not take it and he would not listen. This winter, I read a very interesting book. It was called The Power Broker. It was written by Robert Caro a number of years ago. It's a story of a man named Robert Moses. I never heard of him, but Robert Moses was a master builder in the city of New York. And the story, it's 1,200 pages long and fine print, but it's really about his use of power and also his abuse of power. 
To give you an example of some of the things that he built in his lifetime, he built the Lincoln Center, Shea Stadium, the United Nations headquarters, the New York Coliseum, Co-op City, Jones Beach. In fact, during his time, he built 13 bridges, major bridges in and out of New York City, 416 miles of parkways that redefine the landscape of how you get into New York and out of New York and into Long Island. He built 658 playgrounds, 150,000 housing units. He spent what would be the equivalent of $150 billion in today's currency. And he did that in the years from 1924 to 1968 without holding any elected office, all appointed positions. What was interesting about that is that he was a graduate of Yale, and when he came out of Yale as a young man in those early 20s, he was an idealist. And he really wanted to help the poor and the working class and make life better for him and for them. I mean, and he had dreams, you know, of how he could do that. But when he tried to do that and he tried these initial forays into government and politics, he just got crushed. And he realized that you needed power or access to power to get things done. And so he began to work under Governor Al Smith at that time, and he learned how the system worked in New York City and in the Capitol. And he began to ingratiate himself and come alongside of these guys who had power, and he got a taste of power, and he liked it. And he learned how to write legislation. He was brilliant. He crafted legislation that deep within the bills that were proposed, he would give power and consolidate power for himself. And he put himself in positions as a park commissioner or as a, 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 the guy who was over the Triborough Bridge and Tollway to get that revenue and to be able to use that independent of others. He learned that the best way to write a bill or legislation was to misrepresent and underestimate. And if you could get bills passed where you uh, underestimated the cost and the government gave you some money, you could always go back and get more. And that's just the way he operated for over 40 years. He began to enjoy his power, and he began to rule as an emperor over his empire. And if anyone challenged him, he delighted in crushing them. Until one day, this man became an old lion who was challenged by a new young lion by the name of Nelson Rockefeller at that point in history. And he was banished from power, and he died a bitter old man, wondering why no one was grateful, why no one would remember him or honor him. You see so clearly in this book this rise and fall of a man who loved power and how that power corrupted and changed him. It was the British historian Lord Acton who said that all power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar and he would again learn one more lesson. The third thing that he would learn is that God is able to humble those who walk in pride. And we see it in verses 28 to 37. One year later, this is what happened. He writes in verse 28 that all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. 
He said, is this not the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? He's looking out at everything that he made. Now, granted, Babylon was an amazing city. I mean, when you look in history about Babylon, it is hard to believe. The size of Babylon was staggering. I mean, ancient historians say that the wall around the city was 60 miles in circumference, 15 miles on each side. 300 feet high, 80 feet thick, wide enough that eight chariots could ride abreast. It extended 35 feet below the ground so that people could not tunnel under it. I mean, it was thought to be impregnable. Inside was the great temple of Marduk, or Bel. Uh, it was the most renowned sanctuary in all of the Euphrates Valley. I mean, these statues that were of gold and or overlaid with gold, these altars that were of gold, everything about it was golden. Uh, you had Nebuchadnezzar's palace into which Daniel often went that was one of the most magnificent buildings ever erected on earth. And then the hanging gardens of Babylon were considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world built by Nebuchadnezzar for his family to enjoy. These terrace gardens with flowers and trees and the variety of fruit and things that he could enjoy were astounding. And Nebuchadnezzar was looking at all that he had made and he was patting himself on the back when a voice came from heaven. In verse 31 it says, the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you and you will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals and you will eat grass like cattle. Nebuchadnezzar experienced what some believe was a rare mental illness called boanthropy, where he was like an animal. But the judgment was from God. When I read this story, I always think about the way that Howard Hughes died at the end of his life. Howard Hughes was a billionaire. He died in seclusion in this darkened apartment with the shades pulled. He didn't want to see outside. He was paranoid. He was living in uh, this bed where uh, his nails had grown long, his hair had grown long, and still in that state, this shriveled old man was trying to buy presidents and buy power with his money and control the world. He died like that. And it wasn't until Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes toward heaven that his sanity was restored and he praised and he glorified the God of heaven. And chapter 4 ends with this statement that those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. You see, there are two ways that we can live. You can choose to be your own God and try to control everything and hold everything together and be your own security, be your own comfort. That's the way of idolatry. Or you can let God be God and bow before him. And surrender your life to him and honor him as God of all. Which will it be? How will we live? In reverence to the one true God or trying to be our own God? In the ABF today, you're going to hear the testimony of Chuck Colson. I, many of you have heard it before. I certainly have, and I still find it powerful. 
to think of how God worked in the life of this man who went from the halls of power as an assistant to the president to a federal prison. And yet, because of the grace of God in his life, could say in that prison, for the first time in my life, I am free. I am free. You know, one of the books that had an influence on him, along with the scripture, was the book, Mere Christianity. A book I've mentioned two times before in this series. And Tom Phillips, who worked at Raytheon, was a friend of Chuck Olson and gave him that book to read. And he read the chapter on pride. And this is what C.S. Lewis said. He said, the Christians are right that it is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and family since the world began. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. It wasn't until Nebuchadnezzar looked up that he saw God. I want to tell you one more story as we end. It's another story written by C.S. Lewis, and it's from the children's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Some of you may have seen the movie that came out with that, as long, along with reading the book. But in that book, one of the main characters is a young boy named Eustace Scrub. And Eustace had a lust for power. But he exercised it in the way that a young boy would by being a bully at school, by teasing and taunting others, and by ingratiating himself with adult authorities. He was a little Nebuchadnezzar in training. And one night, Eustace found an enormous pile of treasure in a cave. He was elated, and he began to imagine the life of ease and power that he would now have. But when he woke up to his horror, he had become a dragon. When you sleep on a treasure, dragon's treasure, apparently that, that's what happens. We become like what we worship. And Eustace had become a powerful being, but he was also fearful and hideous and more lonely than he had ever begun. And he began to regret this transformation. The transformation in his life was so shocking that it humbled him, and he longed to be a little boy again. And as his pride faded, the idolatry in his heart began to be healed. But try as he might as that dragon, he could not remove the dragon's skin on his own. He clawed at it, he tore at it, he tried to remove it, but he could not. And it wasn't until he met Aslan, the Christ figure, the lion who comes to him and said to him that you will have to let me undress you. And Eustace said, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. And the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. 
And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. I turned into a boy again. We can't heal ourselves, can we? It is only when we humble ourselves and turn to Christ that we can become a new creation in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the great healer, and only you can remove the pride in our heart. And Father, I pray that if power or the desire for control has become an idol in our life, that we would surrender that to you. Would you tear down those idols? And would you see yourself as the one true God in our heart, in our desires, in our aim in life, to honor and worship you and to love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand today? We don't have a closing song, but I want to read these words of Scripture as our benediction today. It's from Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.